Our gracious Father, Lord, we pause once again to be reminded of even these lyrics that we just sang, that they speak of your awesome transcendence, the fact that you are above us and greater than us, that we cannot contain you, no one can, and yet at the same time you've made yourself eminent by sending your son Jesus into the world to live amongst us so that we can behold God. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who has come to die on the cross for our sins, the one who lived the perfect, sinless, spotless, blameless life that we could never live, who paid for all sins on the cross, who rose from the dead conquering sin. Lord, thank you for the fact that we have hope in Jesus. Think about the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Why? Why, Father? Because of your Son. Because of your amazing love, your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness. That's why we have hope. Because you've sent him into the world to die for sinners such as us. Lord, we are full of gratitude this morning. We love you. We pray that you would grow our love by your grace and our sense of gratitude so that we would walk in loving obedience loving devotion, grateful worship this morning, even in the hearing of your word. Father, we recognize this morning that there are many amongst us or watching online who are hurting, who are hurting spiritually, who are hurting physically with many besetting weaknesses, Lord, even as our bodies deteriorate in this life, we know that. Father, we pray for those who are suffering emotionally, who are suffering from loneliness, who are suffering from even the memory of the death of loved ones. Father, we pray for your comfort and your encouragement upon them. We pray that they would be reminded this morning of the fact that there is hope in Jesus, that for those who have died in Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Lord, thank you for that hope that we have, even seeing our loved ones someday, but even most importantly of seeing you, our Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray for this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold wonderful things from your word. Help us to be people who are doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Father, I pray for your church, not only Calvary Bible Church, but the church at large of the, the true church, those who have trusted in Christ. I pray that we would take our mission seriously in this world. Father, we pray for our governing authorities. We pray for our president. We pray for our for the government on the local level and on the regional level and the national level. We pray, Father, that you would, Lord, save these individuals. We pray that you would use those who are believers in some of these contexts to, Lord, be a light and salt in those places. That, Lord, people may come to ask the real question of life. How might we glorify our one true God and creator through Jesus Christ? Father, we pray for their decision-making that it would not be self-centered and selfish, that, Father, they would return to the God of the Bible and be reminded of the fact that there is absolute truth, that there is objective truth outside of us, that, Lord, relativism is to be rejected. Father, I pray for that this morning. We pray as your people that you would use the circumstances that are going on even in our country to draw people to yourself, that people may not be seeking for redemption in politics, Redemption in pragmatism, redemption in anything else, but that they would be seeking redemption in Christ and a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells in Christ in the future. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2 is our text for this morning. And if I can stand, ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, an honor to God's Word, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Hear the Word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, 
to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is A Heart That Pleases God. A Heart That Pleases God. What does it mean to possess a heart for God? And why is it important that we as people cultivate a heart well-pleasing to our Heavenly Father? You know, the last few months, we've become aware of a number of Christian leaders, as most of you know, who not only have, have fallen, but were discovered to have been li- living a double life. Very sad. Very sad to see those things even go public, on social media and all of that. And I think the sobering question that we should ask is this, when we hear of situations like that. What was going on in the hearts of individuals like that that led them to that point? Because after all, you see, sin of that magnitude doesn't just happen, right? It doesn't just happen. What's the saying? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Sin is incremental. Sin is progressive. And so the question we should ask is, what what incremental steps led an individual or individuals like that to sin in atrocious, devastating ways like that? And not take into account the name of Christ and what they were doing. And of course, the deeper question that I hope that many of us who have heard of these things and have read of these things would be asking ourselves is this, how do I personally guard my own heart so that by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, I am not led to that point, to fall to that extent? Because you see, when another professing believer falls, it's also a caution For each of us, it's a time for us to reflect deeply before the Lord and to self-examine what is the condition of our hearts. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says this, Each one, each one of us, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 warns us against a type of spiritual pride. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he does not fall. And we should never come to a point in our walk with God that we look at others as if we are somehow not susceptible to the same sins that others are susceptible to, vulnerable to as well. And you know the proverb, Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. All of those passages, brothers and sisters, caution us against becoming spiritually arrogant, against becoming spiritually proud, Those passages and many others underscore for us the need for each of us to be diligent by cultivating a heart for the Lord. A heart that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence. That is with giving maximum effort. Stretching effort. Watch over your heart with all diligence For from it, from your heart, flow the springs of life. And so this is what I want us to think about this morning. As we consider even things that have taken place amongst professing believers. This issue of self-examination. Of close surveying of our own hearts. Because we are susceptible, brothers and sisters, to the same types of sins as well. And really this is at the heart of what the prophet Isaiah was warning the nation of Israel about here in the, in, in the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. 
where God speaks through his spokesman, Isaiah, to warn the people. Imagine the time of the divided kingdom, the time known as the divided kingdom of Israel, a time of division when the nation was split in two, into the northern kingdom, often referred to as Israel during that period of time, and then the southern kingdom, often referred to as Judah. It was during that time, during the divided kingdom, that Isaiah, God's spokesman, prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah and to her capital city, the city of Jerusalem. It was a time of solemn warning, a time of solemn caution, because the southern kingdom, on the one hand, had a, it was a great time of prosperity for the southern kingdom of Judah. And yet, on the other hand, it was a time of great spiritual decline under five different kings of the southern kingdom. Judah had repeatedly turned her focus away from God and instead toward other idols, the idols of the nations, the pagan idols around them. The southern kingdom, Judah, had, had repeatedly turned her attention away from God's example of justice and mercy and uprightness. And instead of following his example and being salt and light in this world, they were practicing injustice, oppressing the needy, oppressing the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the alien. They were not manifesting the glory of God as seen in His loving kindness and His compassion and His mercy toward others. It was a time of spiritual decline and lethargy for the nation. In fact, turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And I want you to see this in verse 10. What God says through His spokesman. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. How bad had the nation become that God applies the names of these two wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, to his own people, the southern kingdom? Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wow. Here God is rebuking his, his, his southern kingdom, Judah, through Isaiah, calling out their hypocrisy and their empty ritualism. What does he say? I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your rituals. It isn't that the sacrificial system in and of itself that God had given to the southern kingdom was evil. It's that it was devoid of heart worship and devotion. It was full of hypocrisy. And God warns them and rebukes them through his prophet. What does he want? Look at verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as, as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken what does God want from his people? What does God take pleasure in from his people? He delights in a, in a heart of repentance, of genuine worship and, de, and devotion before him. And so while this was a, a time of great, spirit, uh, great physical prosperity for the southern kingdom, it was also a great time of spiritual decline. 
But even in the midst of all of this, beloved, what I want us to consider today as well is that God's gracious response to Judah's unholiness and rebellion and wickedness was still to send them messenger after messenger after messenger to warn them and to caution them to repent. And that there could be hope in Isaiah 53, the future Messiah that we now know to be who? King Jesus. That there is always hope in the God of salvation. But he's warning of impending judgment here. And indeed, about a hundred years or so later, in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, we're told of three successive deportations at the hands of the wicked Babylonians. Babylon came and sacked the southern kingdom and became God's instrument of wrath and judgment. And so God's judgment came to pass. But God repeatedly again and again says, if you will repent... If you will turn, if you will come and return back to me, there is salvation. In fact, the very outline of Isaiah is very telling. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are God's pronouncement of judgment upon the nation, while the latter 27 chapters of Isaiah all have to do with God's gracious salvation through the future Messiah. Again and again, God is telling his people, even though you've acted wickedly, I will save you if you will turn from your wickedness. And again, we're all familiar with Isaiah chapter 53, aren't we? The great unparalleled um, chapter in all of Scripture about the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always hope in him. There's always salvation in a holy and righteous God But it comes to those who will listen and respond to his word and put their trust in God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we know now to be the Lord Jesus, our hope in him. For those of us who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand this morning, don't we, that we have been given a, a new heart and new desires when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been born again. We've experienced the the new birth. But we also understand that we are imperfect. That we are in this ongoing process called sanctification, whereby we are becoming progressively and incrementally, by the grace of God, more and more like Jesus. So the question for us that Isaiah chapter 66 verses 1 and 2 answers, how might we cultivate a heart for God, is very pertinent for us as believers, isn't it? And here... The Lord himself tells us. Here we hear the very words of the Lord of Yahweh, the one true God. And he tells us himself clearly what kind of person in an ongoing way experiences the blessing and the favor of God. What kind of person does God delight in? Does God look upon with favor? First of all, I want you to notice here. It's the person with a heart filled with reverential awe for God. It's the person with a heart filled with reverential awe for God. Here in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, there's this declaration and then two questions which underscore God's majesty and greatness. Notice First, how God's sovereign declaration here concerning himself points to his authority as the one who speaks here. Verse 1, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. So there's no confusion. So there's no ambiguity. God himself speaks here through the prophet Isaiah. And if you notice, he speaks by his proper personal name. That's how he, that's who God, how God refers to himself. Notice in verse 1, how the Lord there is in all caps, capital L, capital O-R-D, right? That's the personal, proper name of God, translated Yahweh. It's his tetragrammaton, it's his unspeakable name, it's his reverential name, his most personal name, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's God's name which speaks or emphasizes his self-sufficiency, That he is enough in himself. That he needs nothing from anyone. He depends on no one for his existence. He is the self-sufficient God. Yahweh, it's it's the name that emphasizes God's self-existence. 
that God is eternal, that he has always been and he's always present amongst his people. When you think about Yahweh, think of eternal existence, eternal presence, Yahweh. Eternal existence, eternal presence. Thus says Yahweh. And I love how this verse begins here. Because what he's about to say here concerning himself, he emphasizes, carries the full weight of who he is. Notice he declares in verse 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That's anthropomorphic language. In other words, language using imagery that humans can understand to make a point about his greatness and about his immensity. He says, heaven is my throne. It's the place where I sit. And when you think of heaven here in verse 1, don't think of just the, the blue skies that if you were to walk out right now, actually there's not very much blue skies right now, is there? But when there are blue skies, don't think of just the skies that you can see with your eyes. But moreover, think of the vast universe. The vast universe that man has yet to discover, even to this present day. All of the planets, all of the stars, all of the galaxies, all of those amazing angelic bodies. God says, heaven is my throne. It's the place where I sit. The same heavens that Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. In essence, God is saying, there is nothing outside of my sovereign reign. Heaven is my throne. And the earth, it's my footstool. It's my footstool. It's the place where I rest my feet when I sit to rule In the Old Testament, the imagery of of someone placing their feet upon something or someone signified their authority over their subjects. That's the idea here. The earth is my footstool. And so from his own mouth, God is declaring here that he's so great, so glorious, so majestic, so immense, full of grandeur, That even the earth itself is regarded as simply his footstool. The place where he rests his feet. That's how small the earth, the globe as we know it, is in comparison to the immensity of God. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, a passage we're familiar with, Isaiah caught a glimpse of the greatness and the the majesty of God. He sees a, a picture of God as lofty and exalted. Remember? You remember his response as, he, as he's there? He, he hears the deafening outcry of the angelic host declaring about God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I mean, there's myriads of angelic beings, fearsome beings, crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Which means set apart. Highlighting God's uniqueness. The fact that he's the incomparable one. That God is someone of whom none greater can be conceived, as someone has put it. God is someone of whom none none greater can be conceived. This all emphasizes God's immensity. You will also notice in verse 1 that not only does God declare his greatness, but he asks two rhetorical questions there, doesn't he? To further emphasize his, his grandeur and immensity at the end of verse 1. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? And notice he doesn't even answer. He doesn't even take the time to answer those two questions. Why? Because they're not even worthy of an answer. They're self-evident. If God is so great so glorious, so immense, then why would anyone think for a moment that some human physical structure or building could possibly contain God? He is limitless. He is transcendent. You may recall that one of the great themes of the Old Testament was the movable or transportable tabernacle and later on the the temple building or structure that God gave specific instructions about. 
And God had instructed Israel to build him a tabernacle and later this temple building so that he would dwell amongst his people. It was the physical, visible symbol of God's presence amongst his people. Ongoing theme, the the dwelling place of God, the presence of God amongst his people. But as detailed as Moses' tabernacle was, beloved, in Exodus, and as impressive and majestic as Solomon's temple was in 1 Kings, as faithful an attempt the Israelites made during the return during the, from the exile to build God a temple during that return, those structures were never the point, were they? They were never the point. God always was after a right heart from His people. A heart filled with reverential awe for the sake of His name. In fact, notice what He adds in verse 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. I'm not impressed by any physical structures. Why? Because everything originates from me. Everything comes from me. I created all of these things. Beloved, God is so great, so splendorous, so glorious, that there's nothing that can possibly contain Him. He's not limited by time, space, or any physical location at all. And I think as Christians, we've lost some of the sense of of reverence and awe for the Lord, haven't we? Some of us, even in this past year and a half, for as much time as God has given us, as much opportunity for pause, we've taken little time to dig into God's Word and ask God by His grace and the power of His Spirit to awaken in us a greater desire for a higher view of God. A greater view of His majesty, of His grandeur, of His immensity. Some of us have been very complacent and continue to be very complacent. Some of us are full of a heart of lethargy and passivity. I appreciate what Pastor Jay exhorted the men about yesterday at the men's breakfast, that we need to guard ourselves in essence against a heart of lethargy and complacency. There is no such thing as neutrality in the pursuit of God. You're either actively pursuing after the Lord or you're backpedaling in your spiritual walk with the Lord. It's one way or the other. It's no neutrality. And some of us, if we're honest, are there. What a need we have, by God's grace, to cultivate a reverential awe for our Maker, for our Heavenly Father. And maybe some of us hear this and think, well, well, I'm not sure I'm called as a Christian Now as a Christian in Christ, having trusted in Christ, to fear God anymore. I'm not sure that as Christians we're called to fear God anymore. And if by that you mean fear of His coming wrath, fear of His coming judgment for your sins, then you're right. You're not called to fear God in that sense. Because because of Christ's merits, Christ's perfect life on your behalf, if you trusted in Him, Christ's atoning death on the cross, by which, as we sang, He nailed our debt to the cross. By virtue of Christ's resurrection, yes, we are secure in Christ. Nothing having to do with our salvation has to do with anything that we do, any personal merit of our own. It's all based upon the the righteousness of Christ, His perfect life, and His atoning death for our sins. That's the basis of our justification before God. Amen? But as Christians, now in this new relationship with our Heavenly Father, we are called, beloved, by the grace of God to still cultivate a healthy fear and reverential awe for our Heavenly Father. Amen? Notice what I said, for our Heavenly Father. Because it's like the Father-Son kind of relationship, even on the human level, isn't it? Where the son, a, a human son, knows that his father loves him, is absolutely convinced about that. No matter what a son does, you know that you're not going to give them up. They'll always be your son. They know that you're always going to be their father. But a faithful son understands 
I don't want to disobey my dad. Because what's going to come? His fatherly discipline, right? His loving fatherly discipline. I think that is a picture, a parallel to the way that we as Christians now, who are children of God, He's our Heavenly Father, are to still cultivate a reverential awe for God. And some of us, if we were honest, really lack that. We really lack lack that. One pastor has written, What is sin at its core? It is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced. It is the greatness of God not admired. It is the power of God not praised. It's the truth of God not sought. It's the wisdom of God not esteemed. It's the beauty of God not treasured. It's the goodness of God not savored. It's the faithfulness of God not trusted. It's the commandments of God not obeyed. It's the justice of God not respected. It's the wrath of God not feared. It's the grace of God not cherished. It's the presence of God not prized. It's the person of God not loved. That is sin. So true, isn't it? In short, it's to not be filled with a sense of reverential awe for our Heavenly Father. And so in essence, what God says here is I'm not impressed by anything you could do or build for me. I'm not. I cannot be contained by those things. And even if we were to offer God external ritual and church going and all of that, devoid of heart worship and devotion, that is not something that pleases our Heavenly Father. And so what is God after? What does God delight in, brothers and sisters? What or better or Who does God look upon with favor? I want you to see this in the second point. It's a heart characterized by humility before God. It's the heart characterized by humility before God. The more that we behold the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God and who He is, the more that we will understand and know our place. Amen? the more that we will understand our place. Humility in the Christian life is not cultivated by ongoing, constant comparison to other people. We can always find someone else that we're doing better in the Christian life then. We can always do that. Humility in our lives is cultivated by how we stack up to the majesty and the grandeur and the immensity of God. And when we are beholding God in His infinite glory through the pages of His Word, we are brought very low, aren't we? Very low. Now, if I were to ask you, what quality or qualities characterize faithful Christians or great leaders? What would you answer? What would you answer? I once did a survey on this for uh, evening studies that I was doing with adults. And this is generally how people answered. What characterizes faithful Christians or great leaders? Here's some of the answers. Mature Christians and our great leaders are great decision makers. Great decision makers. Great leaders and our faithful Christians are very knowledgeable individuals. They know a lot. Or they are very experienced individuals. Great leaders and their Christians are very skilled people. Very capable people. Very gifted people. And on and on the list went. These were some of the answers that I gathered. There were other answers. And maybe you can come up with other answers as well. But how often... Do we hear or have you heard that faithful Christians, great leaders, etc. are humble men and women? That one of the chief virtues, one of the chief characteristics of great leaders or mature Christians is that they walk in humility. We don't often hear that, do we? Even in Christian circles, we don't hear that. One of the things, going back to my introduction about some of the individuals that have fallen, and we have to be so careful, don't we? Gifted speakers, 
gifted individuals, great abilities these individuals had. But what was happening? There was no heart for God, no devotion for God, no humility when push came to shove, right? Even though they might have given the appearance of that. And so humility, different than the world, is a cardinal virtue for the Christian, for the believer. And the more that we behold, again, the holiness of God and His majesty on the pages of His Word, the more that we will be people who walk in humility because we are rightly assessing ourselves, not in the light of other people or this person or that person and how I stack up to this person or that person, but in the light of the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God. Amen? So different than the world. You remember Jesus as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark? Mark 10, 42, you know, says the Lord to his disciples, you know that those who are, that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. He says to his disciples, you guys have to be different. Kingdom principle number one, humility, humble servanthood, disciples. Which is not what you're going to hear from the world. And he does just that. He goes on to talk about humble servanthood. Again and again, our Lord Jesus, as he prepares his disciples, even in the latter chapters of Mark for Passion Week, for him going to the cross to pay for sins, he continually teaches them about the virtue of humility, fleshing itself out in servanthood, service for others. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus said this in Mark. Because this is, in essence, what Yahweh God says here in Isaiah 66. What kind of heart is God looking for from his people? What kind of a heart should we, his people, by his grace, be cultivating daily in our lives? It's humility. A heart characterized by humility. Notice that he specifies three aspects of this humility in the second half of verse 2. Three aspects of this humility. First, humble thinking. Humble thinking. Specifically, the heart of humility thinks rightly in relation to oneself. Right thinking in relation to oneself. In other words, how we are assess ourselves before God and before others. Humble thinking. This is the, the, the essence of the Hebrew word in verse 2. Translated humble there. God says, but to this one I will look to him who is, who is humble. The idea there is, is lowly of mind. The Hebrew word there carries the, the, the sense of one's understanding and living mindful of one's poverty and affliction. It refers to being brought low in our thinking concerning ourselves. That's the idea. It has to do with the way that we think about ourselves, how we assess ourselves, how we view ourselves, not in the light of other people, but in the light of who God is and His majesty. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, the apostle speaks of the importance of thinking rightly about oneself. And this is in the context of spiritual gifting. Romans 12, 3, For through the grace given to me, writes the Apostle Paul, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Again, that's in the context of spiritual gifting. Paul says, make sure that you rightly evaluate yourself so that you know your place as far as your gifting in the context of the body of Christ. Have a right assessment of yourself. Because there's nothing worse than a person with a lofty view of oneself. Consume with oneself. Andrew Murray, the 19th century South African pastor and missionary, wrote this. Humility does not refer to thinking less of oneself, but of thinking of oneself less. I love that. Humility does not refer to thinking less of oneself, but of thinking of oneself less. In other words, it's not a poor me, woe is me, I'm not worthy, what do I have to offer kind of an attitude, but it's an attitude that doesn't consider oneself as more important than others. I love that. 
It's a humility that drives one to a, a Godward focus, a desire to worship God and to have a reverential awe toward God. And it's others-oriented where we flesh out our gifting and our abilities out of a heart of humility to serve other people, to benefit others, for the well-being of others. God says, I delight in, I look with favor upon, I dwell in a heart of humility. A heart of lowliness. In contrast, listen to James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the imagery there is God stands opposed. That is in battle array, like a warrior stands opposed against someone who is proud. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This cardinal virtue was most true and supremely exemplified by who? Our Lord Jesus, right? Our Lord Jesus. Indeed, we're most Christ-like beloved when we emulate Jesus' humility. Listen to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 about our Lord Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Beloved, consider our Savior, who though had infinite riches, unrivaled in authority and power as we've been seeing through the Gospel of Mark, though he had all of these things, he was the most generous, the most giving, suffering servant of all. Amen? He's our prime example. And it's this type of humility of mind and thinking that Paul instructs all believers to have and even leaders to have. One of the verses that has been a huge encouragement and conviction in my own life is Acts chapter 20, verse 35, as an elder or pastor or overseer. Where Paul, as he's instructing the Ephesian, believer, uh, Ephesian elder, says this, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Wow. Paul says, I've modeled this for you. But ultimately, Christ was our chief example, who was all about humility expressed in loving service and loving servanthood. Ephesian elders, you ought to be the same way. You ought to serve one another. Serve the flock. What is that, where does that come from? A heart of humility. We are most Christ-like when we emulate the one who had all resources at his disposal, yet chose, joyfully chose, beloved, to condescend by coming to our world, becoming a man, dying on the cross to pay for our sins, and rising again from the dead. And that's the reason why we have hope, because of this one Jesus, who is the great trailblazer of humble service, all the way to the cross. Amen? He is the reason for our hope. So can I ask you this morning, what's the condition of your heart as it pertains to the way you think about yourself? You know, one way to gauge this in accordance with the verses that we just read is what does your service look like in the body of Christ right now? Are you using your spiritual gifting that is not for you to hoard it, but for you to use for the glory of God and the benefit of your brothers and sisters in the context of the local church? Are you using your spiritual gifts for the well-being of your brethren? Are you meeting the needs of others in the context of loving relationships? Some of you have amazing gifting and it doesn't belong to you. It's the grace of God. Some of you have amazing abilities. Amazing talents. 
even prior to coming to know Christ, now God wants to redeem those things, even those abilities and those talents, for the sake of His glory and the well-being of His people. And when you flesh that out in the context of the church, for God's glory and the good of His people, you're actually walking in humble service, right? It's a good place to be. You know, even now with us beginning to open up the building more and more, or church life, as it was before by the grace of God, as assuming things are going to continue to move in that direction, right? In our country. As we do that, there are going to be more and more needs that we're going to be putting before you. Right now, for instance, just one off the top of my head, is the whole issue of servants for the children's ministry. And so as you see those emails go out, those church-wide emails go out with, we need this, we need volunteers here, need volunteers there, even in the children's area, do you tend to just ignore those emails? You tend to just assume in your head, well, somebody else will meet that need. And maybe that's not your particular area, but what is your area of service? How has God gifted you spiritually? How has God, what are those abilities and talents that you can now use for the sake of the glory of God? Because you see, that service and you enlisting yourself to serve other people for the glory of God shows humble humility of heart, doesn't it? Notice second, not only a heart of humble thinking with regard to oneself, but also a heart of humble contrition with regard to our sin. We're called to flesh out a heart of humble contrition with regard to our sin. He says in verse 2, look there, To this one I will look, to him who is humble, and read it with me, and contrite of spirit. That Hebrew word there, translated contrite, is used in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4 and 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 3 to refer to the physical disability of Jonathan's son who was crippled, who was broken in his feet. He was crippled or broken or physically disabled, Jonathan's son. It's the same idea here. But this is speaking specifically of our, our spiritual disability. This is referring to the person who is mindful, who is painfully aware of their spiritual brokenness and spiritual poverty before God and thus of our need for daily sustaining grace. That's what this refers to. Did you know that God delights to dwell in the heart of a broken, contrite heart? Psalm 34 verse 18 assures us of this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In other words, the more that we see our brokenness and our unworthiness before God, the nearer God promises to be with us and lavish us with His grace. I love that. Outward service, External ritual, church attendance, even giving of offerings, devoid of heart, devoid of our sense of unworthiness before God, and that God needs nothing from us, but these are acts out of a heart of gratitude and worship before Him. That's what pleases God. Not anything external that we can offer the Lord devoid of our hearts of devotion. Psalm 51, verse 18 or 17 Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God delights in. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, you know the verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You want to know who will inherit the kingdom of God? Those who look within at their spiritual resources and say, I got nothing. I am spiritually bankrupt. Just like the song says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for what? For grace. How do we cultivate humble hearts of contrition before God? It's in the text, isn't it? It's in the text in verse 1, by cultivating again a high view of God, living in the light of God's majesty, God's grandeur, God's glory. 
Because it's only by gazing upon God's greatness and immensity that we are brought low to think of ourselves rightly and to cultivate a heart of sense of our unworthiness before this great God. It was back in Isaiah 6 and verse 5. Again, after catching a, a glimpse of God's glory that Isaiah cries out and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. How did you get to that point, Isaiah? How did you get to that point of contrition and brokenness, of seeing your sense of unworthiness? He says this, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's how. By seeing God, a glimpse of God's glory. And his heartfelt response was of his sense of brokenness and unworthiness before God. Brethren, God desires and delights in people with hearts of humble contrition with regard to our sin. Listen to me. The person who sees God rightly does not diminish the seriousness of his or her sin. The person who sees God rightly does not downplay sin or treat sin lightly. The person who sees God rightly does not detract from the consequences of sin or downgrade the consequences of sin. When we lack humble contrition, humble brokenness over our sin, it shows, it gives evidence that we have a low view of God and thus a low view of our what? Sin. Of God's holiness. And that we have a low view of the gospel, frankly. Because 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's to Christians. That's to believers to those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That we ought to be actively, by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, pursuing holiness, to be set apart from sin and set unto God for His purposes because of the fact that we are redeemed and we are secure in Christ. Remember remember David? When he's confessing his sin in Psalm 51? What words did he utter? Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Oh, David knew in the midst of confessing his sin that the basis of God saying yes to his confession, I will forgive you, was his loving kindness, his grace, and his compassion. It's on the basis of God's grace that then David says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Did you catch how personal his sin was to David? My iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I have sinned. Understood in the text, I've done what is evil in your sight. And did you catch all the different words for his sin against God? Transgressions and iniquity. Twice transgressions and iniquity. And sin, and he calls it evil. Rather than dismissing, downplaying, detracting, downgrading the serious consequences of his sin. Beloved, listen to me. David belabors, accentuates, emphasizes, underscores the seriousness of his sin before Almighty Gracious God. The last thing that he does is set it aside. Well, you know, everybody has struggles. Yes. You know, everybody has weaknesses. You know, nobody's perfect. Those things are true at face value. Beloved, guard your heart by the grace of God from saying those kinds of things and cultivating that kind of approach to your sin so that you downplay its seriousness because it was those sins that nailed Jesus to the cross, right? Yes, God is gracious. But what makes God's grace precious to us is our understanding of the seriousness of our personal sins against a holy and righteous God, our Creator. 
That's what makes grace precious and to be cherished. Because we understand that our sin, it's because of our sin that God sent His only begotten Son into the world to die for sins, right? Our personal sins. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Not just the sins of the world, my personal sins. And when you understand that, then you understand why grace is precious. Why, right now in a few minutes, the worship team is going to get up here and we're going to sing, all I have is Christ. Yes, brother, all I have is Christ. You're going to sing those words out of a heart that just cherishes and treasures God all the more and His Son Jesus because you understand the seriousness of your sin and that it cost God His own Son on the cross. And thus to walk in humility is to walk in daily contrite repentance before God. Let me ask you, what does genuine repentance involve? What does it involve? Well, the English pastor Thomas Watson said that repentance involves at least six primary things. Ready? Sight of sin. Do you see your sin? Do you see? You can't acknowledge what you don't see. Sight of sin. Secondly, sorrow for sin. Are you daily grieved and broken over your sin? Not that you got caught. Not over the consequences of your sin, but over the fact that each day when you sin, you're sinning against your Heavenly Father. Are you sorrowful over this? Third, confession of sin. Confession of sin. To confess means to say the same thing that God says about your sin. To view your sin in the same way God views it, as an affront to Him, and to say the same thing God says about your sin. That's confession. 1 John 1, 9 says to Christians, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, beloved, you don't stop confessing your sins to God because you are a Christian now. You don't cease to confess your sins to God because you are a believer, if you genuinely are. Rather, it's precisely because you are a Christian that you confess your sins to God, your Heavenly Father, knowing and being fully convinced that the answer to your confession will always be, yes, I forgive you in Christ, right? That's why we confess our sins as believers. So sight, sorrow, Confession, fourth, shame for your sin. Shame for your sin. But we know that God will forgive us of our sins. A genuine Christian understands and feels the shame for his or her sins because, again, those are the very sins for which Jesus died on the cross, and we should never find joy or delight in our sin, right? I mean, just think about your spouse. When you hurt or you sin against your spouse, you just say, well, you know, I don't, want to be, I don't want to be driven by guilt or shame, honey. How's that going to go for you as far as forgiveness? No. Part of what you express is, honey, I am so sorry for that. It grieves me that, I would, that I would, I'm ashamed of my actions. I'm ashamed of my words. I'm ashamed of my attitude. I'm ashamed of my tone. Don't you express those kinds of things when you ask for forgiveness? Why would it be any different before our Heavenly Father? Sight, sorrow, confession, shame for sin. Fifth, hatred for sin. Hatred for sin. The mark of the true believer is that we no longer condone, dismiss, enjoy, live comfortably in our sin, beloved. Instead, our sin now brings grief to us, sorrow to us, and we hate our sin. We hate our sin. Not only has the Christian's relationship to God forever changed from enemy the child of God in Christ, but now our relationship to sin has changed, right? We no longer love and enjoy and live comfortably in our sin. We now hate our sin and desire to be more like Jesus. Finally, turning from sin. Turning from sin. Genuine repentance is shown in a heartfelt commitment to not return to that sin by God's grace. And we know that we're not going to be perfect. We know that we are weak. We know that we are, we are an, an ongoing work in progress. We know that, but there's a heartfelt, genuine commitment before God to say, Lord, I don't want to return to that again. Like a dog that returns to its vomit, I don't want to be that anymore. 
I want to be holy. I want to be like Christ. Finally, thirdly, a heart of humble submission before God. A heart of humble submission before God. We're going to finish this next week. But beloved, this is the kind of heart that God desires for His people. What kind of heart does God delight in? What kind of heart does God look with favor upon? It's the person who, having trusted in the the Son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and as your Savior, now you seek to cultivate a heart of reverential awe for God and a heart characterized by humility before Him. Listen, as one of your pastors, if we desire as individuals and as a church here at Calvary to be used of God into the future, to be blessed of God, to be fruitful as we carry out our mission for God, If Calvary Bible Church desires to continue to be used by God into the future, then we must be people who have the glory of God as our supreme priority. Amen? Our supreme priority. No matter what the culture says, beloved. No matter how the culture defines God. We need to come to the pages of God's Word and define God according to what God's Word says, right? And respond in brokenness and humility before Him so that we are driven to the cross of Christ in daily need for God's sustaining grace through Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, thank You for Your grace. Lord, I think about the times of Isaiah and the nation of Israel. And Lord, even reading Isaiah 53, and that ultimately, there was no way that they could ever measure up to that in and of themselves. It was only by trusting in you and in your future Messiah. And now, Lord, on this side of the cross, we know our inadequacies. We know our weaknesses. We know that we are imperfect. But, Lord, help us never to take our sin lightly. Help us to desire to be holy people. Lord, grow, grow us in our understanding of who you are. Grow us in humility. Help us, Lord, to guard our hearts from being proud. Even as we see a culture that just heralds things, man-centered pride in politics or even on social media and entertainers and all of that. It's all about pride and self-exaltation. Lord, humble us before your presence because it's for those who humble themselves. Humble hearts are ready for the cross of Christ to embrace Jesus. Father, even as we sing this song, all I have is Christ, may we mean it, Lord. Help us to be people who truly can say this, because apart from Christ, Lord, we have nothing. So help us to sing out of hearts of worship and devotion to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.